TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here. On TuneIn, go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. Welcome to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. Special Edition is a production of Intercom Communications. The views expressed by guests are not necessarily those of Intercom Communications staff, management, or sponsors. Now... Here's your host, Sue Henry. On today's program, we'll learn how a group of concerned parents in Luzerne County has blazed a trail for children diagnosed with autism. We'll talk to a Pulitzer Prize finalist about her new book regarding the government's research into extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. And we'll hear about a former New York City police officer who details his work finding and prosecuting bad cops. Two decades ago, the word autism may have been heard by parents for the first time in a physician's office. Families may have sought help when a child was slow to speak, had difficulty communicating, or struggled to grasp certain concepts. Parents may have been discouraged during the initial diagnosis and were often told their child would eventually be institutionalized. George and Claire Shady of Drums were such parents. Autism was a foreign word to them, and they certainly weren't alone, but they may have felt that way. They set out to learn all they could about autism, work that George continued after Claire's death in 2001. George founded the group SAFE, standing for Supporting Autism and Families Everywhere. His insistence on a proper education and behavioral treatment for his son Alex became an example for people in northeastern Pennsylvania and around the world. The Wilkes-Barre-based organization has offered seminars, educational advice, support groups for parents and children, and serves as a resource for people around the globe. George has surrounded himself with those who are also committed to making sure children are afforded what they need and parents understand what's available to them. We recently spoke to the SAFE team, including Eileen Perchak from the Hazelton area, whose 20-year-old son Michael is on the autism spectrum. I got involved in SAFE probably almost 10 years ago because I went looking for friends for Michael. He had great wraparound services, TSS services, all of that, but he was missing friends. So I went searching for something and I found SAFE, and this is where Michael has met and maintained his friendships. And I swear I would never let another child be bullied or not have a friend because of autism. We didn't choose it, it chose us. It's what life threw at us, and now through SAFE, we've made some fantastic people, friends, and here we are. Tell me a little bit about your son and the diagnosis, and it's kind of a long time ago, right? 20 years. What was it like then for you as a mom? It was terrifying. You know, when somebody says to you, your son is autistic, it's devastating. But then you pick yourself up, you wipe yourself off, and you say, okay, what am I going to do to help him? Kind of what we did. But 20 years ago, the services weren't there that we have today. The support groups, the TSS, the occupational speech, none of that was in this area. It was very beginning stages of it. So we traveled, and now we really don't have to travel for those services anymore. We have a lot of that right here in Northeast Pennsylvania. This building of relationships for for you and your son, I guess it's it's a two 
two-part thing for you because it's it's you know support for you and, and support for Michael. Can you talk a little bit about how that changed him and it changed you? It changed both of us drastically. It was when I said, you know, when Michael was diagnosed, that's very isolating as a parent because Michael was that quirky kid that didn't get the birthday invitation and that kind of stuff. So it was very isolating as a parent. So then when I got to know the people from SAFE, those parents were feeling the same thing I was. So not only did my son make friends, I made new friends and were, you know, was able to bond and, you know, talk to people that knew what I was feeling and see what they were feeling. What kind of advice would you give to someone who may hear the diagnosis of autism this year for their child, what would you say to them? That we're all better together. All the the therapies and, and the socialization programs and everything that's out there, you're not alone. There's help for you. And never give up and never, ever underestimate that child. And what does Michael do now? Michael is a sophomore in college. He is getting his associate's degree in network interfacing out at, in Johnstown at the Hiram G. Commonwealth Technical Institute. Now, even that, the the prospect of, of having a child with autism and then seeing that child in a college setting away from home, what's that like for you? Uh, it's so rewarding. You know, Michael, he used to not even get up in front of people, wouldn't talk to anybody. He now navigates himself in the world. He takes the train from Johnstown into Harrisburg by himself. We pick him up in Harrisburg. He lives completely independently. He's got a driver's permit. He's taking driving classes. He doesn't even want to come home anymore like a typical kid. He doesn't want to come home anymore. He's come a long, long way. Um, when he was a little boy, they kept telling me to put him in emotional support. You know, he wasn't going to make it, that he should do extended school year. And I just kept saying, no, 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 no. Mom's got intuition, right? Wendy Heiberg serves as executive director of SAFE. She and her family moved to the region because of the services the organization provides. My husband and I have triplets who are 19 years old, and our son Scott was diagnosed at roughly 15 months. At the time, my husband was working in D.C., and we were living in Northern Virginia, and I was having a really tough time getting services. At that time, the Internet was just emerging, so the triplets and I spent a lot of time at the library because we didn't have a computer yet, kind of trying to figure out what autism was and what we should do, and we hit the pavement. We did everything. If it was out there, we tried it. And I came up here for a training, a conference, and met George Shady and a lot of other key players who have been instrumental in our son's life and development. And I went home and told my husband we were moving. And we moved up to Northeast Pennsylvania from just outside of Washington, D.C., in Fairfax County, which was the richest county in the country at the time. And yet you found better services in northeastern Pennsylvania. So you actually relocated here. Can you talk about that decision and what happened in the aftermath? It is directly because of George and Claire Shady and SAFE that services did come to this area. His son is a few years older than my son, and that's kind of how it goes in our community. The people that are at the front help the people that are behind them and so on. We pay it back and the Heiberg family really benefited from the hard work that Claire and George did. And uh, they were able to unite families and kind of get a voice and get some of the best in the country here. Uh, Some of the renowned experts in the field were just a a tremendous influence politically and, and that's how it went. So we moved up here and directly benefited from this area's first verbal behavior classroom, which SAFE was uh, managing at the time. As a result of 
of their hard work. My son has always had a free and appropriate public education. It's a shame that that is the federal law. That's what, you know, is required under IDEA, but it's very difficult to get. And I found that um, this area was much friendlier. I was drawn to the fact that people, I think, kind of take care of their own. Uh, they take care of the elderly. Uh, we are more well-received as a family in restaurants. It's pretty clear that my son has a disability when you meet him. But through SAFE, we've had numerous opportunities to be involved socially and to have a community that we love and loves us. And even takes some of them take the time to learn my son's signs. That's huge. When you heard this diagnosis yourself for the first time, what was it like as a mom, and what was it like for your husband and your family? And then what happened next? I mean, I'm sure that people gave you a, a picture of, of what to expect, but how was that picture wrong, or how was it right? I have a research background, and first I wanted to know the interventions that were out there that, were, that, that had data, peer-reviewed, published data. So that's what I chased down first. I mean, they just gave us a hands-down diagnosis. I said, well, that's great. We know what it is, so what do we do? They said, well, you could try this, you could try that. I couldn't believe it. There was no standard of care. I had never even heard the word autism. So um, there have been some professionals along the way who gave us no hope, and I would encourage parents to always disregard those opinions. And then there were professionals out there that gave us false hope. I tell parents that the best thing they can do is connect with other parents because we have nothing to sell. We're only here to help each other. We have nothing to gain. And we know that every child is, is so different and so unique. So what works for Eileen's son is not appropriate for my son and so on. You did talk about education a little bit, the the right to education and I guess the involvement of, of parents who are instrumental in an educational plan for their children. Parents need to be the advocate. They are the ones who know the child best. You need to collaborate with team providers. Relationships are instrumental. Evaluations, accurate information, trying to develop a, a, a reasonable plan that's actually achievable and to record progress and to program according to the child where they are now, not where they could or should be. Let's talk a little bit about your son and some of the progress that he's made and maybe what he is interested in. And it's been a while since you came here. What, what was it like to watch him grow here and where does he stand now? Oh, he's just an amazing person. Um, he's the hardest worker that I know. He has been working at least 40 hours a week since he was two. He has an awesome sense of humor and personality. He's a signer. He is non-vocal. He uh, is very affectionate. He loves people. He loves the ocean. He loves music. Uh, he loves safe. When we get together, he these are his peeps. He knows. Those are some of the things that he likes. And he's doing extremely well. You know, people said we couldn't do this and we couldn't do that well you know he he's going on an airplane in may to my to participate in my brother's wedding in austin texas so never let people predict that your child will or will not be able to do certain things keep your standards extremely high and fair and just watch them soar 
Peggy Jaracco from Drums is the social media coordinator for SAFE. So I'm a little different than the other guys here. I do not have a child on the spectrum, but I do have a nephew, my sister's son. And uh, I remember when he was born in 95, um, she really was all on her own. It was a shocking diagnosis for our family as a whole, and there was really no place to turn. Similar to Eileen, what she's saying. So these guys, my sister and these guys here today, uh, all trailblazers for the this generation of kids that are are coming up with autism diagnoses is now, which has been really terrific. And um, through knowing them and knowing my sister and wanting to make a difference in somebody's life, I became involved with SAFE, and that's why I'm here today. And what are some of the things that you do with this organization to make sure that nobody does feel alone? Well, we try to m- make sure everybody knows that they're included. I'm the social media person for the organization, so I make sure we get all of our stuff out there so everybody knows what's going on and where to go in and that they're all welcome, their families are welcome, what the event includes, stuff like that. Uh, this is a great month. It's Autism Awareness Month coming up in April now. So there are a lot of events in uh, April. We have, um, in collaboration with others as well, we also promote others' events. So we do have an Easter egg hunt coming up on April 5th um, with Brighter Journeys. We have a day at the zoo, a Philly zoo, which is a very popular one. And there's information on our Facebook page about how to make your reservation. All these events are listed on our calendar, and anybody's welcome to sign up or contact us for more information. SAFE co-founder George Shady discusses the moment when he and his wife heard the word autism for the first time. It was tough, especially when you get a diagnosis and then you're told your child is never going to speak and you're going to be institutionalizing. Alex had self-injurious behaviors, and that was really tough to control. You'd go in the morning and you'd find him covered in blood because he had been biting his hand or picking his nose, and you want to talk about freaking out when you have something like that. Early on, he liked the sensation of broken glass. He used to break bottles and walk on them. And there's been a few children that I've known that had that. And of course, through behaviorism, you learn to control those things. It's very tough. Funny story about him that happened several months ago. Through anxiety, they have coping skills, but they're they're antisocial. It could be jumping up and down, could be making loud noises, could be a lot of fidgeting with the hands. And so I'd always tell him when he was doing something to calm down. So one day after church, he was doing something that was particularly annoying, and I was hollering at him. And I mean, I was really raising my voice to get his attention. Turned around and looked at me and said, calm down. (laughs) (laughs) And I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, I laughed, I cried. That was was perfectly appropriate. And they're the little victories that we have with our children that you have to really work on, and you have to take great pleasure in them. But in the early days, we not only formed SAFE, but we formed what was called the Coalition on Autism. And we made it up of all the agencies and the different school districts that wanted to participate. And it really gave us a great forum to be able to sit down, discuss our problems, what we wanted to do. And what was good about most of the agencies that we worked with is that we told them about behaviorism and applied behavior analysis. Back then it was called the LOVAS method. And they listened to us. And through the coalition, we raised about $360,000 to start programs that eventually went uh, statewide and eventually went nationwide and are now practiced in other countries. Matter of fact, I had the pleasure of taking two checks. We worked, we raised money for Irish people, uh, the Royal Order of Hibernians, uh, Ned McGinley, and I took two $5,000 checks to two schools in Ireland that were having much difficulty in terms of sustaining. So we've also had it international. And we we talk about safe supporting autism and families everywhere. And we've reached out to a lot of areas. In the conference that Wendy talked about, we had a 
several parents from England came to it. We had those two groups at the two schools from Ireland came, and, and we, we you know, helped them out wherever we could. I've always said, and I learned this early on in life, if you ask for one, it's probably none, but if you ask for many, you won't leave any behind. And uh, that's, that's always been our philosophy at SAFE. The politicians have been good to us, but it didn't happen overnight. You know, it was a lot of lobbying. It was a lot of education. I've had politicians come to me uh, that have said, I think my son has autism. What do I do? And these are people in powerful places, uh, but they've had difficulties in their areas getting service. So we reach out and we tell them. I remember testifying on uh, the vaccination issue. And there's no question about it, my son was uh, definitely damaged by his vaccines. And there's a good subset of our children that were, because you know your child. You see them in the beginning, and then they have the vaccine, and the day later they're a completely different person. Now, that's anecdotal, but it's also empirical. And there were, th there were three whistleblowers, I guess about a year ago, that came out and said that at the CDC and the NIH that they had doctored some evidence. But that's kind of fallen by the wayside. And the, and the problem there is, once the damage is done, what are you going to do? I mean, you've got to pick up the pieces and make the best of the situation. You talk about changing behavior. With all of us, that's very, very difficult because, you know, we act the way that we think we should act. But in a situation where someone gets the diagnosis of autism, it just seems to me that that kind of behavioral changing is not only difficult for the child, but it's difficult for the parents. So how did you handle that? Well, it's day by day. You have to take one day at a time. And each day presents a new issue. Each day presents a new challenge. And you have to deal with it at the time. Now, listen, I've been around a while. Uh, I've had behaviorism work for me, you know. It's a, it's a good reward system. And what you learn about people, and especially with children, they learn this right away. If they can't get positive attention, they will seek negative attention. And you'll see parents feeding into that incorrectly, where all of a sudden you have a child after two or three years, the only thing they'll eat is chicken McNuggets, because to calm them down or make them happy, as parents would take them to McDonald's for chicken McNuggets. That is behavioral shaping, but it's the wrong kind of uh, behavioral shaping. Like Alex knows, three strikes, you're out. He gets to the second strike, that's it. He cuts out whatever is the bad behavior. So each day is a challenge, and you've got to be creative. You know what? You're human. You might have had a bad, I, I may have had a bad day or something's not going my way, and sometimes you lose your patience. But again, you have to have the big picture and focus, and you have to always think in terms of positive terms, reinforce the positive, ignore the negative. Over these, okay, so you have a good 20 years under your belt. Yeah. Where did you see some of the things start to go right or some things to change where people had real hope whereas before you'd have the talk where they said listen there's an institution in your future for your child where are you seeing it now and what do you think has made the difference in this long struggle and do you see real tangible evidence that what you and the people in the Wyoming Valley have done is being used across the world well in the early years Claire and I used to go whenever we had a chance to talk about autism we talk about autism because people didn't know what it, hadn't heard the word, didn't know what it was. And in the early days when we would give a, a speech to the Kiwanis or some social group, we'd say before the year is out, you're going to know somebody with autism. And that became the case. 
and awareness initially was a real problem, but now it's not. I mean, people are very much aware of it. There's a NASCAR race being run nationally. It's going to support autism. I'm into car collecting. There's a big a national car collection show. They're supporting autism. And sometimes I have to admit, I'm human. I get a little jealous. Why can't we do that or why haven't we done that? But again, if you, if you help and you give out information and you share, it, it, it goes a long way. What are some of the breakthroughs that you've seen that you believe are going to change the course of this? Is it the early intervention? Is it some kind of behavior uh, modification? Is there something else that you see that may make things a little bit easier in the future? Well, it's multifaceted. What I believe and I have seen in, in 24 years, what's called applied behavior analysis or the behavioral, strong behavioral program across all environments is the best thing and that should be the basis of every parent's program for their child. You have to have consistency in the school, you have to have consistency at the home, you have to have consistency out socially. I can remember with Alex one time, he loves Disney, he's probably been there 30 times, he could be a, a tour guide, but we were in the one exhibit where it was 3D with Kermit the Frog, and he started acting up, and I gave him the two strikes, we got to the third strike, I grabbed him by his collar and I ripped him out of there, and I'm halfway through Disney and he's yelling and screaming, I'm literally dragging him out of there because there was no way he was going to see the rest of that show or stay in Disney because of his behavior, and all of a sudden it dawned on me, I'm going to be arrested, somebody's going to report me for child abuse but I thought to myself well fine let him do it but he's not going to do this again and that was probably 15 years ago and I've never had a problem with him since in any of those environments because he knows if dad says it or at the time Claire would say that was it he knew that's the way it was going to be so he, he we've shaped his behavior and and it's, it's, it's worked quite well. Your son is an adult. Many other people with autism are reaching adulthood. Are you looking down the road now from the services that were instituted in schools and the IEPs, et cetera, to build that good foundation to adulthood? Answering that question by getting back to what you asked earlier, we also encourage parents. There was a time you had to get the three shots, and we learned about the three vaccination shots at once. We've, there was a time you could not get a doctor to give separate shots, and in a lot of countries, that's exactly what they did. They would give the shots over a wider space period of time, and uh, they would give individual shots. Now, we used to tell our parents, if the doctor won't do it, find another doctor, because your responsibility is the child, not the medical profession or not that doctor. So that's one of the things that we instituted. Now it's very easy to get the simple shots. School districts, we tell them what to do with school districts. As I said earlier, Wendy gives great seminars on what's called rights law and how to write your own IEP and make sure that it's properly adhered to and that the school district does what they're supposed to do. And sometimes you run into professional that are very lazy and they don't want to do their thing, but we empower parents, you know, we give them the information, we give them the tools that we need. Social was a big problem, but, you know, through having our support group and having the different social groups, these kids are really emerging. We have kids who are very, very severe, They're college graduates, some with honors, but these were these were children that society was willing to throw away and stick away in institutions so they didn't have to be faced with that. We realized that our children early on uh, needed some place to go with as adults, so I learned about special needs trust. I've presented internationally on special needs trust, and that's parents need to think in, in those terms because we're not going to be around here forever, and you want to make sure that the child has access 
to funds that they can do the kind of things that they want to do so that after all this intensity up to age 21, they don't fall off the cliff. And now they're not getting services or not doing the things that they like to do. And the other thing I tell parents, and this is one of the things we've learned, very few people know that at age 21, the institutions, the mental health, mental MR uh, institutions can take over guardianship of your child. So you really have to go and see a lawyer that's an estate planning attorney and make sure that you have guardianship for your child. You know, you get some aggressive uh, individual caseworker We've had instances of this, you know, they want to take away the responsibilities for that child from the parents, which is a horrible thing to do. And we've had situations where that's occurred and it's been so traumatic and it's been so difficult for the child that they end up regressing. This week, they made an announcement that one of the characters on Sesame Street will be a young lady with autism. Did you ever think you'd see the day when that would be woven into program like that? How progressive does that sound to you as somebody who was around when people didn't even know what autism was? Well, I'm pleased to hear that. There's been a lot of things that have changed, but to be honest with you, I expected that someday. You know me. I'm a very aggressive person. I can be very subtle and laid back, but I can also be a bull in the china shop. And Wendy over there helps me. She locks the door to the china shop sometime. But I, I expected things like that because it's a huge population. It's a population that can accomplish great things. If Albert Einstein were alive today, he'd be diagnosed with Asperger's syndrome. Michelangelo, I mean, there's some great creative people. Do they have quirks? Yeah. Do I have quirks? Yes, we all do. But again, if they're socially acceptable, that's fine. Hey, guy gets up. As soon as the snow gets away on a Saturday morning, early in the morning, what does he do? He wants to change, chase a little white ball around 18 holes. You know, that's behaviorism, and that, that's appropriate in our society, but in some places it wouldn't be. George Shady of SAFE also revealed he'll soon be stepping away from leadership of the organization he founded. Because of the great staff that we've had that we've worked very hard for a number of years to develop, and we have these three wonderful women and there's four or five that are really key that are doing different parts of helping SAFE expand and continue with the services. It's time for me to move on and SAFE is creating a position for me, Chairman Emeritus, and I'll be moving on soonly, shortly after the board approves the bylaw changes and that kind of thing. So I'm still going to be actively involved. Heck, I'm downstairs. They can't get in the front door without me seeing them. But I'll still be actively involved. But I'm thrilled that what we've worked so hard for over all these years is now we have the new generation taking over. And there's, there, there will be definitely continuity and improvement. Is it hard to let go? I mean, this has been a, the fabric of your life for a long time. Well, initially it was proposed that I retire, but I hate that word. I used to tell my wife uh, when she asked me when I'm going to retire from New York Life, I said, hopefully, God willing, it gives me health. My retirement party will be my wake. Some of the events coming up to note April as Autism Awareness Month are a candlelight vigil on Friday, April 28th at 6 at the Luzerne County Courthouse and the Autism Awareness NEPA Walk on Saturday, April 29th at 9 a.m. at the 44th Recreation Complex. Businesses around the region are also selling postcards as a fundraiser for SAFE. Their Facebook page is Safe Inc., and their website is autismsafe.org. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. 
You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. Pulitzer Prize finalist Annie Jacobson is known for researching stories that are a bit unworldly. She's explored Area 51, delved into Operation Paperclip, a program that brought Germans, including known Nazis, to America to get an edge on Russia during the Cold War and in the race for space. Now Jacobson has written a book about extraordinary human functioning, an exploration into how pseudoscience could give the U.S. an edge as part of its defense strategy. Her book is Phenomena, the secret history of the U.S. government's investigation into extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. I write about war, weapons, U.S. national security, and secrets. And so I'm always touching upon these very secret, sacred, and taboo areas. The book Phenomena was no different, except for it was a little bit, because you're dealing with themes that touch upon the supernatural. That was one of the aspects that I found most fascinating, because it's, a, you know, it's an area that most people don't want to report on if you're, uh, if you're a reporter, because it's so ridiculed. But I interviewed the scientists and the psychics themselves, and I also interviewed the skeptics so that I'm able to kind of tell the story right down the middle. Here's what's been going on since the advent of the CIA, and then let the reader decide what they think is fact and what is fantasy. You know, Annie, people have such varying opinions where we live about the CIA. Uh, a lot of people uh, just even question their how, how they were founded, what they really do, and, and their funding stream. What, what about their role in what you researched? Uh, you know, a lot of this research came from the original idea of the Nazis, which I think, is, you know, makes sense. There's so much stigma attached to it because anything that the Nazis were doing with the occult is, is ridiculed with often good reason. We, the Americans, and I found this out from the National Archive records, got half of the documents from the Nazis. It was, they were called Das Ananerbe. That was Himmler's pseudoscience department, and he was researching ESP, map dousing, astrology, psychokinesis. And then the Soviets got the other half of the cache of documents. And so it set off this psychic arms race. And the CIA's job is to stay ahead of the intelligence. And so when you look back at these documents, you realize the CIA had a real reason to pursue this because the Soviets were. What they then went on to do is really pretty remarkable because the first steps in this arena had to do with psychopharmacology, drug taking, to try and enhance this alleged, you know, psychic functioning in some people. We see this all the time, even uh, uh, in mainstream media, you know, take this pill, it, it's going to open up your brain, and, and some of it is these these natural things that, that people do take uh, to stave off this, that, and the other thing. In your research, where is the most validity to mind-altering substances? And, and you know that some people look at uh, LSD as a bad thing, and then some people look at LSD as a good thing. So were they looking at that? They were looking at hallucinogenic mushrooms specifically. Um, interestingly, and again, this is all in the documentation, Library of Congress, National Archives, there was an Aztec legend that down in Mexico, this mushroom existed that shaman could take that would give them divinatory power, so like the divine, seeing the future. 
And that's what the CIA was interested in. So they sent CIA scientists, this is in the 1950s, down to Mexico in search of this drug. And then that opened the door to many other research programs. But that was just the launch pad for all of this. The scientists obviously are are divided over things like this, I would imagine, quite stridently. Uh, Those who bought into this, were they ostracized? Were they ridiculed? Did they have to keep it on the down low so that they would still maintain some kind of credibility with their fellow scientists? Generally, scientists who work in this area are ridiculed by, let's call them the mainstream scientists. But here's an interesting concept. So, And I write about this in the book. In the 1940s, there was a experimental psychologist from Harvard called named Gertrude Schmeidler. And she came up with this way, this, these two categories of people dealing with this subject matter, sheeps and goats. So the goats are the scientific skeptics, the people who find anything in this arena utter nonsense. The sheep are those who are inclined or willing to consider the possibility of things like ESP, extrasensory perception, and psychokinesis, which is the ability to move matter with the mind. And here's an interesting statistic. So that that sort of division goes back to the 40s. And yet, today, the most recent Gallup poll shows, so now we're talking regular people, culture, Americans, 73%, that is a great majority of Americans, say they believe they are sheep. They believe they have experienced something that would fall into this category of the paranormal, Mm -hmm. the supernatural. And 23% are goats. They say this is utter garbage. And yet in the scientific community, the, the real leading edge is the scientists who say this is garbage. And that comes back to the fact that the phenomena, if you will, is fickle. It, it, act, it does not follow the scientific method, and anyone who says it does, I think, is misleading you. The phenomena exist in the world of hypothesis. Experimentation cannot be repeated, and therefore you can't have a general theory. And scientists that oppose this have a, a very correct position in saying this is not scientific. It does not follow the scientific method. Some of these uh, individuals who maybe claim to have these these kind of abilities, these powers, um, do you believe that some of them were trying to turn the tables and maybe pull the wool over the eyes of, of the government or, or not? Well, it's a great question, and it's very important because this is a world peopled by charlatans and snake oil salesmen and fraudsters. The government worked very hard, at least, you know, the CIA. I looked at the programs individually. So there's a vetting process that, that, is, that has to go on and that is relatively easy when you're talking about sticking a alleged psychic in a Faraday cage. A Faraday cage is like an electronically shielded room and putting them to the test and saying, okay, show me what you can do with drawings, let's say, or what's in the box test they're called, where you put a you know, a cardboard box in front of them and say, tell me what's inside. And they can't use their hands, and they're electronically shielded, so they can't be getting information from the outside. And it was back in the 70s, so it's not like people had cell phones. They weeded out the connivers, and what they were left with were individuals who were fiercely talented in these areas, number of whom I've interviewed, people that are now in their 60s and 70s. I don't think the government was, you know, um, hoaxed by any of these people. I think really the issue is, and I try to delineate this in the book, is what happened, what was successful, what was an abysmal failure, and what does this really mean to this bigger question of, like, 
what is this alleged power? Because everybody knows somebody who has it, whether it's intuition, you know, or premonition. Let's talk just a little bit about Yuri Geller, because when I was a kid, I honestly, I put the spoon on the TV when he said he could bend it with if we put our minds together. What's his role in all this? Geller, you know, was uh, is a real formidable character, and I thoroughly enjoyed interviewing him. I interviewed him at his home in Israel and also his home in England, and I was amazed by his incredible energy. I mean, he is a force to be reckoned with. He absolutely maintains the position that his powers are real, you know, quoted with me saying that he has never, ever said that he was, he's a magician, and that any time anyone has ever said that, it's been a misquote, and demonstrated some remarkable things. But again, you know, let the reader decide. What I did write a lot about was Geller was absolutely a CIA asset. No question about it. The documents show it. This is in the 1970s. And it was interesting, fascinating to me, the way he was brought in was through an Apollo astronaut. I also interviewed Ed Mitchell, Apollo 14, before he died. And he was fascinated by all of this this world of ESP and psychokinesis, and he really took a hit for it. He was ridiculed. And he and Geller were kind of foils for one another, meaning Mitchell wanted to believe. He wanted the powers. And he, he looked at Geller as someone who represented everything that was possible in that arena. And where do you think we stand right now in, in 2017 in, in this kind of research? Do you believe uh, through your discovery that it is, is still active and it is something that the government is, is pursuing to this day? I was stunned to find that it actually is going on today. And there are public statements that support that and also lots of interviews I did with current DOD assets. What is super interesting is that they use an entirely new nomenclature. There's, an, there's new language around all of this, whereas in the 70s it was called remote viewing to try to destigmatize the idea of ESP. Today's programs, I'll give you one for example, at the Office of Naval Research, they call it anomalous cognition. So they're kind of being fancied up under the guise of technology. Another program is called Advanced Perceptual competence. And these programs, these ESP programs, have been rebooted specifically after in Iraq, some of the soldiers reportedly could predict where an IED was. And they would say to their fellow soldiers, you know, let's not go down this road. And the Office of Naval Research got very interested in this and are now looking at those soldiers, studying them, using advanced technology, brain scanning, Mm -hmm. to try and determine what might be in their physiology that gives them this so-called gift. And of course, in true DOD style, then working with neurobiologists, with information technologists to try and enhance that feature in the soldier. That's Annie Jacobson, author of the new book, Phenomena, the secret history of the U.S. government's investigation into extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. You're listening to Special Edition on Entercom Communications. You're listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications, hosted by Sue Henry. The public's perception of police officers is often shaped by widely reported incidents of any malfeasance that may arise. Conversely, many feel the police aren't held accountable when there's an accusation of misconduct. 
Charles Campisi has insight into the investigative process that took place in the New York City Police Department, where he served first as an officer and later as a member of the Internal Affairs Bureau. The memoir of his work is called Blue on Blue, an insider's story of good cops catching bad cops. You served for so long in the NYPD's Internal Affairs Bureau. You had a a great long tenure. And in the uh, bio for your book, it mentions at the beginning of your career, you actually had a little brush with these IAB folks. How did that uh, change you or foreshadow what you were about to do? Well, it did change me, and it did uh, make a difference in my approach to the investigations when I was finally drafted in, because I didn't think, in that time, there was a, a, an allegation that someone, that a police officer had stolen a Christmas tree, and they brought in everybody who was working that day, who was even remotely near where the Christmas tree lot was, and they basically accused us of stealing Christmas trees. And uh, I didn't think they gave us a fair deal or a fair shake, because there was a plenty of evidence to show that I was nowhere near the place, and uh, they just didn't treat us well. So I said, you know, number one, I don't ever want to be an internal affairs investigator, (laughs) and number two, if I ever got into it, I wouldn't treat people badly. And then, lo and behold, you ended up there. I was drafted there, and I wound up spending uh, 17 and a half years as the chief of internal affairs. Uh, We all know that uh, there is extreme scrutiny on uh, police officers. And we all know that people lodge all kinds of investigations. How does that make the job extremely difficult for someone like yourself? Well, it does in the respect that a lot of people are just trying to get even with the police officer for doing his or her job. And there is little truth or little facts to some of their allegations. So it makes it difficult to weed through those allegations and get to the ones that really are truthful, that really are, are... Uh, Cases where officers have done uh, bad things, committed crimes, assaulted people. How much uh, training goes into uh, the the ethics part of the job, Charles? And and from uh, 96 until 2014 when he left, how did police training change to uh, make the officers uh, more cognizant of the situations that they could find themselves in and to make them realize where the ethical lines were? Well, what we did in the NYPD is when an officer enters the academy, and our academy is about six months long, uh, there is a whole week dedicated to integrity and discipline. And each of the different courses, whether it's a a course on law or social science or police science, uh, even firearms and tactics training is dedicated to the ethical performance of your duties. And internal affairs plays a, a big role in that training because we come in and we explain the pitfalls. We explain the things that they might encounter. And we also show them that we're here to protect the good cops, but we're here also to go after and prosecute the bad cops. Um, in, in some of these situations, we always hear from uh, people who, uh, you know, the police stop. They say things like, well, I didn't know. Did you run into situations where police officers simply did not know that what they were doing was wrong? Well, in, in the cases that we were investigating, we're dealing with crimes, you know, clear, uh, clear-cut violations of law, clear-cut violations of our department policies, rules, and regulations. Uh, very rarely can someone fall back on ignorance when they're doing uh, committing a criminal act. It's just, you know, very difficult for them to uh, to take that approach. How difficult is it 
to be a police officer in these times when uh, we, we've seen case after case across the country where people say they are profiled, where people say they are uh, treated with suspicion from the get-go, where there are these situations where people are using uh, their own cell phones to tape something and, you know, the angle may not tell the whole story, but it's it's already across the country and around the world before anybody can say, well, there's more to the story. But you're right. It does make it very difficult today in today's day and age for an officer to go out and, and do their job uh, as diligently as they would like to. Uh, you find cases now where officers are second-guessing themselves, where they're uh, are holding back and they're, they're trying to figure things out, and they're taking too much time putting themselves and, unfortunately, uh, the citizenry uh, in some danger. But you're, you're right about the cameras because we've had a couple of cases here in New York where uh, there were numerous angles and numerous videos, yet the one that is the most horrific is the one that uh, that seems to be appearing more often. And now we, we use, officers are starting to wear body cameras themselves, especially here in New York. We've started it off as a pilot, and we're moving to a point where, uh, in the short order, all officers will be wearing body cameras. We've put them in our, our police cars. And I personally think that that's going to be a major benefit for the officers. Number one, it's going to protect the good cops. It's going to, you know, it's going to show what happened from their perspective, from their point of view. And also, some of those bad cops are going to think twice now because they know that they're, they know they're absolutely on camera. And, uh, and there's a very small number of cops who, who steal the headlines away from the good cops. And, you know, my opinion, around the country, overwhelming majority, police officers, dedicated, hardworking men and women doing a very difficult job. But that small number, that small percentage is the one that, you know, takes away all the, uh, the glory. Have you ran into any people who have left this profession because they just uh, they, they don't like the scrutiny and they don't like constantly uh, feeling as though uh, they're, they're about to do something wrong when they're just engaged in an arrest? Yes, unfortunately, there are people who are turning down the job to start with, so they're not becoming police officers. And after a short period of time, uh, there are people who are leaving the police profession for better-paying jobs with much less scrutiny and much less second-guessing of their actions. In this book, you do detail a, a couple of the uh, lengths that you have gone through in order to do investigations of police officers. Would you mind sharing some of that with us and talk about some of the cases and, and some of the ways and means that you did your investigations to make sure that uh, no stone was left unturned? Uh, yes. What we try to do is, you know, most investigators and most internal investigators around the world are reactive. Somebody makes a complaint and they, uh, they respond to the complaint and they try to do the best job they can. For us, that wasn't enough. So we tried to do our things very proactively. So we did sting operations. We did integrity tests. Uh, we had surveillance. We went to wiretaps. We used every legal means at our disposal to investigate cases, uh, sometimes turning a, an anonymous tip on the phone into a major case because we were, we, we were dogged. We, we followed through. Uh, and we were able to, we had a case where an officer was involved with some marijuana dealers. He was helping them move marijuana 
uh, and driving the car with the marijuana in it, believing that if someone stopped him, he can just identify himself as a police officer and get away with it. Well, what we did is we did a series of integrity tests. Well, we had the officer, he was moving drugs, uh, but he thought he was doing it for a bad guy. He was actually doing it for one of my undercover officers. And we put him in, in situations where there was money and other things of value, and we watched him on video stealing the, the money. So we worked very hard at having a comprehensive case, one that would stand up in court, uh, and it was clear, there was no doubt about it, that we were dealing with a corrupt officer. Did anything uh, truly disappoint you or, or break your heart about one of your colleagues? Yeah, sometimes you just uh, you, you, you lose uh, you lose faith for a short period of time. We had a case where a police officer sodomized a uh, he was an innocent man. He was the wrong man that they had arrested, and it was uh, it was very tough to to uh, come to grips with the fact that uh, number one, a human being would do this to another human being, and then made it worse. It was a police officer who did it to a human being. And to make it worse, it happened in a police station. So that kind of shook me a little bit. That's Charles Campisi, a former member of the Internal Affairs Bureau for the NYPD and the author of Blue on Blue, an insider story of good cops catching bad cops. You are listening to Special Edition on Intercom Communications. Thanks for listening to Special Edition, a weekly look at the issues in the news and the personalities shaping the stories. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. Back clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. And even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to TuneIn.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening.